We're going to be in Romans tonight, so you can go ahead and turn there. I've got a couple of uh, brief uh, announcements to make. First, um, if you haven't signed up for Rafa Run, um, I don't know if... Who, who in here gets the emails from Rafa? Who signed up to get those? Okay, so Theresa sent out a deal today saying they're 61% short of their goal and all that in a week when abortions were made easier through legislation. And so I um, want to encourage you all to continue um, supporting Rafa, whether it's through the run or other means. Um, it is uh, necessary. And we've got sign-up cards and details for the Rafa run out there. We've also got baby bottles that we're filling up with change and, and getting the kids involved to, to raise awareness on that. So y'all be attentive to those things. Also, this Friday and Saturday, we are hosting an Empowered to Connect simulcast. So we'll have guests on our campus. We want to be um, hospitable and welcoming. And who in here is planning to go to that? Is anyone in here planning to go to that? Okay. There's like 500 people going, so I guess y'all are the ones that aren't. Um, But um, if you know someone who has any family dynamics or relational dynamics where there's difficulty with a child from a hard place. This is really an incredible training. Did anyone in here go last year? Okay, so if you've been, you can vouch for just how good it is. And so it's solid training to uh, help kids receive healing through relationships by God's design. And it's not just kids from hard places, it's really any kid. And so um, we'll have guests on our campus the 8th and 9th. Um, through your life groups, we're asking for snacks and other, th- other details, so you should be getting um, communications on that. And um, as part of that, tonight afterwards, if three or four of y'all will hang out after Bible study and help set up some tables and a coffee bar for the Empower to Connect conference, that'd be great. Cassie, Scott will actually be in here at the end to help coordinate that. So guys, if y'all can, you know, three, four, y'all can hang out to do that. It shouldn't take very long. So those are the announcements. We are in Romans. Let's pray. We'll get to it. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. I am so thankful to be able to be here tonight and to consider your word. I really um, love the book of Romans, Lord, and um, just pray that um, those here tonight would really be blessed by seeing just how amazingly righteous, just, and holy our God is and how you have moved consistently throughout the ages. Um, As we consider the defense for such things, I pray that we wouldn't consider it as a defense that is that you need, but a defense that we need to hear so that we can receive as, as fact and as instruction um, how great our God is. So Lord, I, I, uh, I thank you for our time tonight, and I, we trust you with it and entrust ourselves to you. I pray that you would use me as you see fit as we teach through this, and I pray for solid communication and conversation um, within our group tonight. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I mentioned last week in God's sovereign wisdom and timing, our Wednesday night teaching and Sunday preaching have lined up, so we got Romans for a whole two weeks, Wednesday, Sunday, Wednesday, Sunday, and Romans, which is great. Um, As well, as we enter into Romans, we enter into a new section of our New Testament study. The last section made up Matthew to Acts and was called The Truth About Jesus, and Romans to Philemon makes up a section called Key Ideas for the Time, for the Times, and I don't really like that title, but it's what we're going with. It's it's what Dever uses, and we're utilizing his uh, material. But as we say key ideas for the times, we're not just talking about, here's some ideas for your life. We're talking about, like, these are key points of truth um, for every generation that came from the time that these um, pastoral epistles were written. 
So we're going to recap a little from last week. Does anyone remember what our focus was last week, the, sort of the title? No one remembers the title or the focus. It was about Jesus. It was about Jesus. That's fantastic. justification of sinners in the eyes of God. And we had six points that we considered last week as we considered justification of sinners in the eyes of God. So a few questions to stir us up, because apparently we really need it. Um, What is justification? Just in general, what is justification? Yes. That's more particular. We were going to get there. But yeah, great. Righteousness before God. When we talk about justification, what it means to be justified, what it means to be a justified Christian, one who has seen this moment of justification that has led us into sanctification, we're talking about how a person can be right with God. And just the notion of needing to be right with God brings up a lot of questions like, why aren't we right with God on our own standing? What does it take to be right with God? Does God require us to be right with God? Are we talking about God's requirements of rightness or some other requirements? What are we talking about here? Why is it all before God? Is it the same for everybody? So a few more questions to draw out some of these details. Who needs to be justified and why? Yeah. Yes, everyone needs to be justified. And, and why is everyone in that spot? All have sinned. That's right. So as we're talking about these things, remember last week I said that this could almost be as like a little handout or pamphlet, like your notes. It would be almost a tool for both evangelism and discipleship. Discipleship being communication uh, with, with other brothers and sisters who need the gospel, and evangelism being communication with lost people who need the gospel. As we talked about on Sunday, yes, it's the power to bring lost people to being saved people, but it's also their power to bring saved people into salvation. So there's never a time in your Christian life, whether right when it began or up until the very end, that you don't need the gospel. And everyone needs to be justified because all sin. Can anyone be justified by what they do? Okay. Again, these are foundational realities. We like When we stray from these and... and turn the gospel into other things or try to package the gospel in maybe an edgier way, we lose the potency of what was meant to be here. And so in, a, in our culture, these foundational realities are um, very ignored by so many Christians. And so last week, last Wednesday, utterly foundational. Sunday sermon, utterly foundational. Tonight, Utterly foundational. And then this upcoming Sunday sermon is going to be even more just, here. this is the gospel. Like, bring your lost friends, bring your saved friends. We're talking about gospel, and we all need it. Just the, the most basic, like, how does this all work? Paul, the reason this is called one of the best letters, uh, the greatest letters ever written, is that Paul does not leave any stone unturned in talking about God's righteousness, the righteous requirement of God, the righteous actions of God, the righteous character of God, and the righteousness of Christ that's imputed to us, and how we are made to be more righteous through a process of sanctification. He doesn't leave anything um, 
explored. So, how are we to be justified? Kind of an important point from last week. How are we justified? Yes. Yeah, faith in Christ. The only way that we can be justified is the works in Christ, and the only way that we can have those works counted as ours is by faith in Christ. So who can be justified? All. All kinds of sinners. This isn't limited to just Jews. It's not limited to just the Jews and Gentiles of the time. It's not limited to a specific ethnic group or age group or timeline of people. All kinds of sinners can be justified. What always, always, always goes hand in hand with justifying faith. Justifying faith is never alone because what always goes with it? Good works, a changed life, a changed life. So these are foundational realities that we all really, really, really need to be very, very familiar with. Everyone who has justifying faith cannot just say they live however they live, but they have justifying faith because justifying faith always goes hand in hand with a changed life. That's how God works. This is his design. This week's focus is a little bit different than last week's. Last week's was the justification of sinners in the eyes of God. This week's is the justification of God in the eyes of sinners. Now, is anyone troubled by that phrase? The justification of God in the eyes of sinners. What is troubling about that phrase? What a, why does God need to be justified? What else? How is it possible? Anything else trouble you about it? Justification of God in the eyes of sinners is the title of tonight's study. He doesn't owe sinners anything? He doesn't owe the righteous anything? God shouldn't have to be justified? Yeah? All these things are very, very true. So just so you know, I haven't lost my mind. Let me explain something. And then we'll move on. At this point, um, I'm going to try to explain why this is our approach tonight. Paul is addressing a reality in the lives of those who were living at the time, a reality that included you know, 1,500 to 2,000 years of Jewish heritage these promises made to Abraham that affected all of Israel leading up to this point, Christ coming to earth, crucified, resurrected. Now we have a church made up of some of those Jews and some new Gentiles. And there are things that need to be explained because it's hard for people to understand in that setting exactly what the heck just happened. Um, uh, we were talking this morning about um, how for the Jew, like even just changing from the Sabbath rest to the Lord's Day and changing from Saturday to Sunday, like you're going against millennia of heritage and tradition that is considered blasphemy and sin. So if you're going to follow Christ and observe this, this beginning, this new beginning of a week in the Lord's Day, you, you have to be sure, right? You have to be completely sure that, like you can't dabble in Christ. There's no dabbling in Christ. You have to be sure. You have to be all in. And so what Paul addresses in the letter to the church in Rome is this. 
if we can only be justified through Christ, and most of Israel rejects Christ, and God promised Israel blessings and inheritance through Abraham, what does that mean? Right? That, like, we don't even need to move forward in this study if we don't all understand this premise here. If justification only happens through Christ, and most of Israel rejects Christ, and God promised Israel blessings and inheritance through Abraham, what does this say about God? What does this say about God's promises? How can we defend God's actions against those who would fault Him? Because some would fault Him by saying the Gentiles, but the the promises belong to Israel. And so Paul exhaustively addresses these very, very important potential arguments against the righteousness and the goodness of God. I mean, the very beginning of the message is all about gospel, the righteousness of God. That's where we're going Sunday. So, we have to understand what Paul is addressing because some would say, okay, all those promises were made to Israel and now you're talking about all these promises fulfilled in Christ. Israel's rejecting Christ. What in the world is going on? What the heck is happening How can God be God and do it that way is what many, 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 many Jews are asking. So we've got four things we're going to look at tonight. First one is this. God himself remained faithful. Israel was unfaithful. This is very important. This is how Paul begins his explanation of how God has not changed who he is or changed his plan, we have to first understand God is not the one who has been unfaithful to covenant promises. Israel is the one who has been unfaithful to covenant promises. Look at chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. It says, we'll just start in verse 1 just for clarity. Notice it's titled, God's Righteousness Upheld. So if anyone questions that, this is what Paul is aiming to to say to make clear that God hadn't changed, uh, pulled a switcheroo, he hadn't done anything. This is what has happened. What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Paul's answer is much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And then Paul... Paul says the Jews were entrusted with these oracles of God, the truths of God, the promises of God, the blessings. And then Paul says, what if some were unfaithful? So what is the first question that, like how do you summarize the first question that Paul's diving into here? What if some were unfaithful? Who's he talking about? Some Jews. So all he's doing is posing the question, what if some Israelites were unfaithful? He's addressing the reality that not every single ethnic Israelite was faithful to the covenant of God. Many were faithful. Many tried their very best to uphold the law, to adhere to every standard that God set forth in the law. They tried. They tried. They were far more pious and noble Uh, in their approaches than some of us could ever really realize because we didn't live during the time where the law was being enforced, the Old Testament law. But he says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one of them were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words 
and prevail when you are judged. See, today we have this ability to look back and understand that without Jewish heritage, there's no Christian heritage, right? That's why we're not anti-Semitic, foolish, ignorant people who don't have any value in in tradition and heritage because we have a Judeo-Christian heritage. And so we can look back, and when, when we look back as Christians, we have the ability to look back and see this big picture of Israel's role, about this 1,500-year tutor of the law that led us up to the point of so desperately needing a Messiah, so desperately needing someone to save us. And then we see Christ come on board, and we, we can look back and say, oh my goodness, so many prophecies utterly, particularly fulfilled in Christ. And we can appreciate that. We can understand that. We can see that. But for Paul, what I want us to see is though we can understand it, and though he could even understand it, even though it was sort of a fresh wound, you know? I mean, Christ, you know, we're talking about years of time here, not decades at this point even. Uh, Maybe a couple decades at this point. And so... Paul, what I want us to see is that God remained faithful, Israel was unfaithful, but Paul doesn't treat Israel's unfaithfulness in a flippant manner. Paul is broken by it. If you read through the book of Romans all the way, did anyone read it this week? Okay, most of you, fantastic. Um, If you read through it and you get to like chapter 9, you begin to see how very heavy-hearted Paul is towards his Jewish brothers and sisters. Paul was a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he was changed. He was, he was completely changed for, by Christ for Christ. But that did not give him a, a disparaging view of his Jewish brethren. He did not look at them as though they were just fools, that they just needed to get their junk together or anything like that. He, Israel's unfaithfulness is a big deal to Paul. And it's important for us to understand that because when you talk in such solid terms of, of this is who God is, this is how he revealed himself, you take it or you leave it. You do not get to change who God is. You speak in these solid terms. If, Like I've heard a quote, and I used to not like it. I would say when I began ministry, I thought it was silly. And after a decade and a half of ministry, I think it's utterly true. The whole people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You ever heard that phrase? I believe it. I used to think, that's stupid. Truth is truth. I love you. Here's some truth. But I really believe after a decade and a half of ministry and seeing lots and lots of different things, and I hope I get decades and decades of ministry and and this will remain a a thing. You A decade and a half doesn't make me a pro at anything, but it certainly has given me some... some, uh, some desire to make sure people know how loved they are when I'm sharing the gospel. And Paul is sharing these truths that are very, very just concrete. You don't negotiate them. But his love for Israel, for ethnic Israelites, never went down because of Christ. It never lowered because of Christ. Turn to chapter 9. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. 9, 1 through 5. 
Paul has just finished chapter 8, which is probably the most encouraging chapter in all of Scripture, in my opinion. It talks about these, this unbroken chain of promises that comes from God that what he started, he finishes utterly in every one of his children and nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not persecution, danger, nakedness, the sword. No, in all of these things, we're more than conquerors than we loved us. Chapter 8 is this amazingly encouraging chapter where he is, I mean, it is the, bl- the blessings of the gospel as expressed in a way that, it's just amazing and encouraging. Then he gets to chapter 9. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to, to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. What I want us to see here is that God himself remained faithful and Israel was unfaithful. But Paul's encouragement in the gospel did not change. He was able to have this massive encouragement of gospel while also having great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for his Israelite brethren. For those who were brothers and sisters in, in his Jewish heritage and faith, that, that he, he still has un, great sorrow and unceasing anguish. And not just great sorrow and unceasing anguish, he goes so far as to describe something that doesn't exist. He said, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my kinsmen according to the flesh. So what Paul is saying there, to make sure it's very clear, he's saying, if I could sacrifice my relationship with Christ... If I could go to hell, eternally separated from God, I would. if there was a love like that that existed, because love like that doesn't exist. You can't have that kind of love of Christ and forfeit Christ. But if I had a love for God and a love for my brethren that existed where I could be accursed and cut off from Christ to guarantee that they could be saved, I would do it. That's what Paul's saying here. Like, that's a huge, huge statement. I could wish that I was accursed and cut off. So he has this encouragement in the gospel, but he has this deep love for Israel as Israel is sitting in their unbelief and their unfaithfulness. And look at 10.18. In 10.18 it says, But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. He's talking about hearing the gospel truth. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands 
to a disobedient and a contrary people. Paul is explaining the state of Israel now that Christ has come to earth and paid the ultimate sacrifice for sin. Paul is explaining here that not only is he explaining what's going on, but he's explaining that he knew from the Old Testament that Israel would be disobedient. And not only did he know from the Old Testament that Israel would be disobedient, but even Moses knew it. And Isaiah prophesied it, saying there will be others. Like other nations will make Israel jealous because of their connection to God. And, and God's situation is that all day long he held out his hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So what we're looking here, we're talking about the justification of God in the eyes of sinners. And what Paul wants us to see right off the bat with crystal clarity is that God himself remained faithful and Israel was unfaithful. So God was never unfaithful. That's number one. Even knowing these things, he remained brokenhearted for his, for his, his Jewish heritage. Number two. God has always worked by calling sinners to faith. Calling sinners to faith wasn't new with Jesus. Calling sinners to faith is the way God has always worked. Look at Romans 10.10. I'm going to read the part right before what we just read. Romans 10.10 says, For with the heart... One believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're not sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord... Who has believed us, who has believed what he has heard from us. Dever has a note here. He says, In short, God has not changed his way of working with sinful people. He always used his word to call his people to faith in him and his way of salvation. So, how did Old Testament people come to faith or come to belief or come to salvation? Through faith. Through faith in God's design for salvation. They trusted God's design for salvation through faith. That's the way that God has always done it. And it's important to understand that from the book of Romans because we know that it's not something that he decided to change up. He decided to just give it another go, which leads us to our third thing. God has not changed whom he intends to save. Some people might be inclined to say that God's salvation didn't work for one group of people, so he moved to another group of people and deserted the previous group of people. That may have been what it felt like for the Israelites who didn't believe. Don't you think that's what it would have felt like? Like you're an Israelite. You've had your way of life for generation after generation after generation. And now Christ comes to earth and people are calling him the Messiah, the long-awaited one who would save them, the king. Hosanna, Hosanna, remember? And so Jesus comes and things begin to change and all of a sudden these Jewish brothers and sisters that you have, you look over and now they're brothers and sisters with these other people who are followers of Christ who are Gentiles, who had nothing to do with the Jewish life and the Jewish upbringing and the Jewish laws and the Jewish customs and the promises and everything else. And so it would have been very, very different for them. And they might have been like, well, okay, so what are you saying, Paul? 
Are you saying that God, who has been our God and we have been his people for all this time, now he's just, it didn't work and so he's going to change to, to the Gentiles and to others and he's changing it up and, and deserting us. And Paul responds directly to this objection. So when Paul responds directly to an objection, you know you're not making an objection up, right? So look at chapter 11, Romans 11. Romans 11 says this, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Spoiler alert, we are going all up in that on Sunday. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles as to make Israel jealous Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full full inclusion mean? Exclamation point, not question mark. You summarize what I just read. Massively important piece of scripture that recaps what happened to Israel, what's happening with Christ, what's going to happen in the future with Israel. What did I just read? Your own words. If you need to take a few minutes to to look at it, do it. But I want to make sure we're tracking. Your own words. What did that mean? What does that look like? What did we just read? Yes. Uh, it's, it's, God's, it's God's work. And uh, but he's always, it says he's always had a remnant you know, yeah. in Israel. Yeah. So there's always been the, the people in Israel who were truly yeah. saved by grace. Yes. And, and regardless of sacrifices offered or anything else. Yeah. Yeah, they were moving in faith. There were always true Israelites that were moving in faith. So what does that, what does that also mean? Mm-hmm. The longer their promises, but they turned his back on him. 
Yeah. To make them jealous. Jealous. So ultimately, they will find inclusion in their yeah. Yeah, this is a pretty incredible piece of Scripture. Um, Paul's argument throughout chapter 11 is that God never guaranteed that salvation would come to every single ethnic Israelite. But in fact, through their actions, faithful or unfaithful people, heeding the call of God and going to God for His way of salvation, the true Israelites have always been the children of the promise. Throughout, in chapter 11... um, You see branches being broken off. You see different language being used. We're going to read some of it in a second. But what we have to see here is that God has not changed whom he intends to save. He has always intended to save the faithful. And there were some ethnic Israelites who were faithful, but there were some ethnic Israelites who were not faithful. And true Israelites, according to Paul, are the children of the promise, not the children of the flesh. So just because you're an ethnic Israelite does not mean you are automatically saved. However, if you have faith in God and you go to God for his way of salvation, you are true Israel. That's what Paul argues throughout this book. 11.25-26 says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So we see a full inclusion in chapter 12. How much more will the full inclusion mean? And here we see a partial hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So it's pointing to something happening in the future, right? What's it pointing to something happening in the future? What is it? The Gentiles come to faith. Anything else? Israel who? We got like all kinds of definitions for Israel. Israel who? Now we already know a Jew is not a Jew who's a Jew. There's all kinds of different Jews in the New Testament. Who are we talking about? Okay, the Jews that are God's chosen people. So what's being implied here? Not all Jews are chosen, but what's being implied as will happen later in the future? Which Jews? The chosen Jews of what ethnicity? Yeah, there you go. Okay, so what I want us to see here, there's different perspectives on this verse. Some would say that the, um, the, the full inclusion here, well, there's, there's some different language I don't want to get mixed up. There's two ways of looking at this, really, that are, that are two of the main perspectives. One is that the true Israel is the remnant. One would say that the remnant being talked about here is, is us. Because in, in, in as much as you... A Gentile who was grafted in, and as much as you trust God, by faith you, you move to God in Christ, and as much as you have faith in God and trust God for His way of salvation, no works at all, you are an Israelite in the truest sense. This room's full of Israelites in the truest sense. 
So some people believe the remnant is talking about us. Others believe that there will be a mass conversion of ethnic Israelites in the end times, which is pretty cool to think about. And I actually tend to believe that as well because of the language here. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And you see now if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And so the first time I heard about this, I remember it was over a decade ago, is when I first started teaching through the book of Romans, and I was listening to every single sermon I could get my hands on. I've never been more hungry for the word in my life. I was literally commuting back and forth to Dallas two or three times a week still, and I was listening to three or four sermons a day, and um, one of them was a Piper sermon on this particular text. And I just remember John Piper, I mean, like I can, I've heard so many of his sermons in the earlier years. I probably hadn't listened to one in five years at this point, but I used to just, I, Romans, I found, I found him and he had done all of Romans and I was like, oh, jackpot. And so I just listened to all of them. I've listened to every Roman sermon that John Piper's ever preached. And I remember driving down the road. I remember I was coming down George Bush before it even connected all the way to 30. And it was in that spot where you had to go the weird, funky back roads and get on Dow Rock and go to rap all this different stuff. And I remember coming around there, and I remember John Piper's voice saying, the full inclusion. This means that when you wake up in the morning and you read the headline, hundreds of thousands of ethnic Jews Come to Christ, grab and hold on with both hands, because the end is near. And I mean, he, I loved, I will never forget hearing that and realizing, just kind of having this encouragement as a Christian to say, God is so powerful that there even remains today, generations later, we're talking about over 2,000 years later at this point, that there remains a remnant of ethnic Israelites just like during the times of the prophets of Baal, where he said, I, I've kept, like you see Elijah saying, I'm the only one left. And God's like, hold on there, buddy. I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. To know that today, somehow through the generations, the power of the gospel is as such that God today and up until the end of the time of earth, he today has a multitude of ethnic Israelites who will come to faith in Christ. Can you imagine how sweet that faith will be for those ethnic Israelites who have the promises and who have the covenants and who have the worship and who have all the stuff that went with being an Israelite for them to see Christ in his fullness and come to Christ in faith and realize all the works are not necessary? How sweet that will be for those ethnic Israelites. So as we talk about the full inclusion, I believe that we're including that. So... Either way, whatever your perspective is, we can agree, it should be clear that God should never be condemned for not keeping his promises. Not only has he kept every one of his promises, but his promises reach to those who they, whom they thought it might never reach, and his promises will still reach to the most unexpected in our world from here to the end of this world. God keeps his promises. He has not changed whom he intends to save. And the fourth one, our last point, is God has always acted for one ultimate purpose, His namesake. Our world does not like this point. God acts and has always acted for one ultimate purpose, His namesake. Turn to Romans 1. We're going to do 
little survey flyby here. One five. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Paul's intro, remember? His intro is the gospel. His identity is the gospel. His plan for ministry is the gospel. The way he gets them to trust him is the gospel. And here in the very intro, he is talking about the gospel, which is about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Look at 420. No unbelief. These are these promises realized through faith, and through we're talking about Abraham and the faith of Abraham. Remember, Abraham had faith before the whole circumcision thing, because you have to have faith before you circumcise yourself. And in verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is all about God's good name. Look at 9.17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So even the things that were done through Pharaoh, the power that Pharaoh had, was God working for his own namesake. And then in 9.23, it says, well, I'm just going to read this, and if we get into explaining it too much, it's going to get cray up in here. 9.19 says, You will say to me, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And then this is what I want you to pay attention to. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. It's about His name, the riches of His glory, for every vessel that was ever prepared, the ultimate end, whether He was patiently enduring vessels of wrath or preparing a beautiful blessing for the vessels of glory. It's always been about His name. Paul's effort to justify God is not merely an attempt to win his readers. We talked about this a little bit on Sunday morning. He's not just trying to get them to think what he thinks. Paul's effort to justify God is not an attempt to win his readers to his way of understanding. And what we see throughout the book of Romans is that Paul is not persuading as much as he is instructing. It's a really important point. Paul is not persuading in as much as he is instructing. He's not saying, hey, have y'all considered this and maybe you can buy in. He's not flippant in a take it or leave it sense, but the gospel has such an emphasis that we can't be take it or leave it about it. It's either you believe it or you do not believe it. It is the way of life, it is an aroma of life, or it is an aroma of death. It's, there's nothing neutral about the gospel. And what Paul is saying here is, this is truth. <laughs> He's not presenting it as one possible form of truth. 
We're going to be going here on Sunday morning, and I'm really looking forward to it. But Paul's efforts here are not just to persuade or present a possible notion that someone may want to nibble on and, and see if they want. He is saying this is what is truth. He is instructing. He's not seeking approval. And the emphasis, this apex that he reaches in fa- is found in chapter 11, where he goes into this remnant. He's talking about Gentiles being grafted in. He talks about the mystery of, of, of Israel's salvation. Um, we talked about all this stuff. We just looked at the full inclusion and all these different things. And then in verse 33, Paul kind of reaches the pinnacle of all the details that lead up to what life looks like for a Christian. It's all these... Um, these indicatives that will eventually get to imperatives. But he says in 33, 11, 33, as he's explaining all this truth about God, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. It almost sounds like the end of the book. He's so emphatic about how central God is to the gospel. If we make the gospel mainly about us, we're wrong. If we make it mainly about lost people, we're wrong. The gospel, the starting point is that it has always been about God. It is the righteousness of God revealed from faith, for faith, to faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And Paul is emphatic about reflecting upon the realities of a very real God who has it in a particular way, and you are not allowed to modify or dabble in that. You receive it or you do not. When reflecting upon this letter, the Roman letter, Romans, the letter to the church in Rome, Luther said, Only a humble man can receive the word of God. When you talk about God moving in such, I mean, this, the depth, unsearchable, inscrutable, who knows his mind, who's given him counsel, no one. You receive from God. That's it. You don't do any works. You don't earn it. You don't add to it. You don't modify it. It is from God. And he's so huge. And Luther's response and looking at this and reading Paul's writings is, If you are proud, this is not going to fly with you, is it? It takes a humble man to receive the word of God. So my question in closing is, what makes it difficult for people to receive God as he has revealed himself today? What makes it difficult for people to receive God as he has revealed himself today? What's difficult about a God who reveals himself only in a particular way? Error. What do you mean? Narrow. It's a narrow way. Unfair? Yeah. It is. 
very unfair. Yeah, find people have a right to find their own way to God. That is a yeah. People find comfort believing. Say that again. Yeah, which means what regarding God? Yes, if we think we're fundamentally good and not in need of Savior, then if He doesn't accept us that way then the error is with him, not with us. Yeah. People don't like the concept of the elect, but it's all over the Bible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. I, I'm going to... We're going to dig into this pretty deep on Sunday morning, but not too deep, because I want it to be just as clear and digestible as anything, hopefully, that I've ever preached. But um, what makes it difficult for people to receive God, and we, we've, we've talked about it from different angles, but God has revealed himself, and what makes it difficult for people to reveal God as he has revealed himself, is, and, and a big part of it is just the notion of absolute truth. Like the notion that there is an absolute truth that comes from a single source that is not up for discussion. Most people don't like that. I mean, think about the things we're willing to discuss. Think about the legislation related to the things we're willing to discuss. I mean, we had all kinds of stuff happening in Georgia, North Carolina, and all that kind of stuff right now. We think everything's negotiable. We think bathroom usage is negotiable. We think like what people should be forced to do and to not do is negotiable. We think truth is definitely, definitely negotiable. Our culture... I mean, I told you about my friend who said, I am my truth. Okay, well, I'm my truth. Well, that's offensive. Well, how can you be offended by that? If you're you're your truth, I'm my truth. I mean, if nothing's absolute, then no one can be offended, right? If nothing's absolute, you can't be absolutely offended by my absoluteness and my perspective. And if you find that I'm intolerant, you certainly can't be intolerable, or you can't find me intolerable in my intolerance because your intolerance wouldn't tolerate it. I mean, it's, it's really a, a ridiculous arg- circular argument that really gets nowhere. And the reason that our culture has such a problem receiving and accepting God in the way that God reveals himself is absolute truth. I want to negotiate my terms, my time, my way, my principles. This is what's important to me. So in my view of God, this better be important to God. And absolute truth is something that more and more and more our culture seems to just push back against. But if we're gospel people, we have to operate from square one, absolute truth. Square one. The only reason there's gospel and the the subject of the gospel, the content of the gospel, is God reveals himself the way he reveals himself. He is perfectly holy. He is perfectly just. He cannot change because he doesn't need to change. We do not impose anything on him. And if we don't start with this is God's, then there's no telling where we'll end up. I do lots of premarital counseling and different things. And one of the deals is, it's like marriage is not our idea. There's absolute truth. Our God created marriage. He revealed it as he wants it. So we can't make it whatever we want it to be. Sex. God made sex. If you deviate from the reality that God is unchanging and God made sex, we can see clearly what we turn sex into as a culture. 
It's wicked and vile. Piper says, in response to this truth, he says, we should be deeply sobered. This is a long quote, but just listen. We should be deeply sobered by the awful severity of God, humbled to the dust by the absoluteness of our dependence on his unconditional mercy, and irresistibly allured by the infinite treasury of his glory, ready to be revealed to the vessels of glory. Thus, we will be moved to forsake all confidence in human distinctives or achievements, and we will entrust ourselves to mercy alone. In the hope of glory, we will extend this mercy to others, that they may see our good deeds and give glory to our Father in heaven. So we have 11 chapters. The indicatives, Dever says the indicatives of who we are in Christ are in chapters 1 through 11, and it's followed by the imperatives of 12 through 16, which describe what these transformed lives look like. And I just want to close with a little reading from Romans 12 on what the transformed life looks like, and then we're going to pray. Thankfully, we get to preach through this book because it is rich. Romans 12 is where we get to the application. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That's a really good stopping place. I want to encourage you all to read Romans 12 tonight. And if you can read 12 through 16, it's a worthwhile endeavor. It might take 20 or 30 minutes. But in light of all of the things that God has done, I love that one of the first things he says is, everything you are, be transformed by the renewal of your mind and present your entire being to God for his good use, for his glory, for the sake of his good name. And by all means... Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. It's so appropriate that that's one of the first things he says because this has always been about God and it will always be about God. And we, if we are a vessel at all, we are a vessel for his mercy. We do not want to be vessels of wrath. It is one or the other. So do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Let's pray. Lord, you are very, very good. Oh man, we could stay here all night going through Romans, and um, I am so thankful that tonight we just got to get a taste of the gospel realities that it has, there is absolute truth, and the absolute truth is beautiful. I pray that we see that. I pray that we see how in need we are of your grace and mercy, and I pray that we see how destitute we are when we try to rely on our own works. From tonight's study and on into Sunday morning, let us be a people who are bowled over, encouraged by, broken by, amazed by the righteousness of God. We love you, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.